Testament scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Lok of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Almighty and everlasting God, in Christ, you have revealed your glory among the nations. Preserve the works of your mercy, that your church throughout the world may persevere with steadfast faith in the confession of your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. Usually I go faster. I was just going to see if y'all would actually respond tonight. Um, good evening. It is good to be back with y'all. We missed you last week. Um, and we missed that sermon. Uh, it, sounded, it sounded really good um, over audio. I bet it was even better in person. Um, so glad to hear it. Glad to be back. Um, tonight we are going to continue our series through the five solas of the Reformation. Um, and just by way of reminder, if you've been in or out, um, we started with sola scriptura. Um, and sola scriptura was the, uh, what theologians call the formal cause of the Reformation. And when they say it's the formal cause of the Reformation, they say that because the Scripture provided the form or provided the outline of how they were going to go about arguing. So anytime you're in a debate, um, it's always important to define the terms and to define the standard by which you're going to determine who wins the debate. 
And so in the time of the Reformation, you had uh, the Roman, what would become the Roman Catholic Church uh, and the Reformers arguing over what is our standard, what is the ultimate authority by which we will judge what is true and what is false. And they parted ways over the issue of sola scriptura. The Catholic Church, if you remember, said uh, tradition and scripture are equal. And thereby, since both are always correct, neither um, has authority over the other, um, what ends up practically happening is authority trumps Scripture. The Reformers saw that. They butted against that. They said the Bible itself doesn't even teach that. And so the Reformers and everyone after them has adopted the position of sola scriptura. So if we are arguing, if there is a debate, um, if someone tries to convince you of something pertaining God or what He requires of man, the Scriptures alone are our ultimate authority. And we kind of discussed some of the ins and the outs of what that did mean and what that didn't mean. Uh, And we won't do that here, uh, but you can go back and listen to it if you missed it. Uh, And then the next week, uh, we covered solus Christus. Uh, So again, there was an argument in the church, how are we saved? By whose merits are we saved? Is it Christ's merits alone, or have other people sort of come along and merited some grace that then could be dispensed um, into your account? Uh, And so we dealt with and saw um, that no one save Christ alone could earn salvation for you. You can't earn it, um, and no one can earn it for you. It had to be the God-man, Jesus Christ. And then last week, uh, you dealt with sola gratia, or grace alone, and uh, you had some heavy topics. Um, the, I don't know if he told you what he was doing, but he was uh, expounding triple imputation. Um, so uh, that, is, that is a big deal, um, but hopefully if you got nothing else out of it, um, you got that grace alone um, is why God saves you. There is nothing you can do on your own to merit His grace. Um, It is His grace alone. And grace is not some substance infused to you, um, but it is a way of God looking upon you and reckoning you and counting you righteous in His sight. Um, And what we're going to look at tonight is um, the third of what you often hear us say together, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's that third alone that we haven't covered, sola fide, that we are going to uh, be discussing tonight. Um, And sola fide is the material cause of the Reformation. So while um, sola scriptura was the formal cause or um, what we're going to outline the debate, sola fide was really the crux of how is justification even happening? Um, What is the grounds of which our justification takes place? How does God be gracious to us? How does God reckon to us Christ's merits? And then next week we will finish with, like Mark said, soli deo gloria. Um, Why would God ever do such an amazing thing? Um, So the background uh, of our text, or uh, of our topic today is Romans 4. Um, It's a bunch of different selected verses in Romans 4, so we will be uh, working from your worship order. Um, So if you would, stand. Uh, If you're willing and able, stand with your worship order in hand. That will be the easiest way to follow along um, with the reading of God's Word. Hear God's Word. 
What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. That's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The Word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of His Word, and may He grant us all the grace to trust and obey it. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? That is the single most important question anyone could ever ask. And the answer to that question is the single most important answer anyone could ever give. The Scriptures tell us that literally everything is on the line depending on how you answer that question. Now, before we dig too deep into it, we must admit that there are some assumptions that underlie that question. Some of those assumptions are that you and I even need saving in the first place. To ask, how must I be saved, we're assuming that we need saving. Another assumption um, is that being saved might even be a possibility. So for us to say, how can I be saved? We've got to think that we need saving and that there is a possible answer to that question. So for the sake of time uh, and for the sake of context, we're going to make those two assumptions already. That you do, in fact, need saving and that there is, in fact, a way to be saved. 
There is a way for God, the infinite, holy creator of the entire universe, to reckon you as loved by Him and to bring you into His presence, to forgive you for your sins and to credit you with the righteousness of Jesus. There is, in fact, a way for that to happen. Let's assume that we believe that and that it's possible somehow. Somehow this is possible. And tonight we're actually going to deal with the somehow. How can you be made right? How can I be made right? The theological form of this question is how can you and I be justified before God. And you talked a little bit about the topic of justification last week, but we will flesh out how can you and I be justified tonight. John Calvin described the answer to the question of justification, the main hinge on which salvation turns. Thomas Watson said justification is the pillar of Christianity. And Martin Luther said, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Remove the knowledge of this doctrine and the glory of Christ is extinguished. Religion is abolished. The church is destroyed and the hope of salvation is overthrown. That's how important these men thought the topic of justification was. And it wasn't just these men that thought this was important. The Rome, what would become the Roman Catholic Church thought the topic of justification was so important that anyone who disagreed with them on the issue of justification was to be anathema. They were to be excommunicated. They were to be cut off from the church and thereby eliminated, eliminated from receiving God's grace. So if you're tempted to think this topic of justification is one that we can take lightly or one of those topics that we can just agree to disagree on, you are sadly mistaken. This is the core of our faith and we cannot get this wrong. It wasn't the only topic of the Reformation, but it was and continues to be one of utmost importance. Last week, Greg taught y'all that you were justified by God's gracious act of imputing or accounting or reckoning Christ's merits to you. And so the question today is, well, how? How can God possibly do such a thing? The Roman Catholic Church um, at the time and still to this day teaches that God can reckon or can infuse grace into you as if it were a substance and that justification is a process. So Rome teaches that um, upon your initial um, baptism, you have um, the, the beginning elements of God's grace infused to you. And then as you participate in the teachings and the life of the church, as you engage in the sacraments, as you cooperate with God in good works, you merit more and more grace. And if you merit enough, then at the end, you are justified. 
And so we reject all of that. The scriptures reject all of that. And I'm assuming you've been here long enough to hear what's wrong with some of that. Justification, we believe, is by grace alone. And we believe that justification is a one-time act, not a process. It is the moment where God reckons Christ's perfect righteousness to you that you are justified. It is not a process. The Protestant church looks down on Romans, uh, the Roman Catholic church's salvation um, by uh, grace plus works or by faith plus works. Um, But as we saw a few weeks ago, the Protestants fall into our own problems. Right, We have our own issues when it comes to the topic of justification. So a Protestant might ask the question, how can I be saved? And then a Roman Catholic would say, well, you get baptized and then you engage in the sacraments and you merit more grace and then at the end you might be justified. And a Protestant would say, no way, that's not true. So how would a Protestant answer it? Well, how might I be saved? Well, pray this prayer with me. Accept Jesus into your heart. Try your hardest. Get baptized. Those are ways that Protestants who profess to believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, would tell you that's how you get saved. But what's the problem with that? That is making salvation, faith, and works. We reject that. Another temptation that Protestants fall into that we'll discuss is they make faith itself a work. So we can say something like, uh, we are saved through faith alone. And what happens then is God saves you because of your faith. And so now faith is the object or faith is the grounds or faith is the reason that God saves you. But don't you see the problem with that? It makes faith a work. It makes faith the reason God accepts you. So while we would say faith plus works is obviously work-based, we should also reject the fact that faith itself is the grounds through which you are saved. So the results of both of these works-based systems. So you would look, I was talking to a guy this week um, who was feeling guilty, and he was Roman Catholic, and he said, oh, it's Catholic guilt. So he's in this system where uh, he's got to follow the rules, and if he doesn't follow the rules enough, then he feels guilty. right? And if he does follow the rules enough, how does he feel? He feels proud. And if he doesn't, he feels fear. The result of a works-based salvation system is inevitably pride or fear. And then in addition to that, it is legalism or lawlessness. So if you believe that salvation is any way related to works, you are going to have to be a legalist. You're going to have to set up these laws through which you can merit God's grace. And then once that doesn't work, you go off the rails into lawlessness. Because I can't keep these laws. And so they give up and run off into lawlessness. And so if they can come back, and if they can check off these boxes, and they can go through confession, or they can go through and participate in the sacraments to get rid of their guilt, 
then they can behave however they want. And that's what, that's what Luther was seeing going on in the church. Rampant lawlessness where people were taking these ways that the church had lined out and using those as an excuse to sin. But brothers and sisters, we Protestants struggle with the same thing, right? If we make faith the object of our salvation, it too can result in pride and fear. Pride because I have faith. I figured it out. My faith is what saves. And we wouldn't say that outright, but if you're not careful, that's how you think about your faith. And if you don't become proud by that, if you're a little bit more honest with yourself, then if my faith is the object of my salvation, I'm afraid. I'm terrified. Because my faith isn't always strong. The road isn't always straight. In fact, it's quite bumpy and dark and lonely. And so I'm riddled with fear because I'm putting faith as the object of my salvation. And it too leads to either legalism or it leads to lawlessness. If I have faith, then I can do whatever I want. Because my faith is the ground. My faith is the object of my salvation. And so as long as I have faith, then the way that I behave doesn't matter. So we would reject the Roman Catholic's view of a works-based salvation. But if we make faith the object of our salvation, we fall into a works-based salvation. And we have the same effect. And that's the reason you can look across at the church landscape and you don't see much of a difference between the two. So what do we do? If we believe Rome got it wrong, and we look around the church landscape and we see faith being the object of salvation and so much emphasis on my faith, what do we do? How can we be saved? How can God reckon Christ's righteousness to us? The Reformers and the Bible says faith alone is the means through which God saves you. It's not the object. So we have to, before we talk about what sola fide or what faith alone is, real quick, what it isn't. Faith alone or or the teaching that you are saved through faith alone is not teaching that you can just know the facts and agree that they're true. That's not faith alone. I just know these facts And I agree that they're true. Faith alone says, I have to know what's true. I have to agree that it's true, but I've got to trust in it. I've got to rely on it. That's faith alone. It has to change the way that I live, not just what's in my head. Faith alone is also not an abstract faith apart from reason. So, one of the misconceptions of, well, we're saved by faith alone, is, well, I'm just, just have faith, right? Just take a leap of faith. That's not the doctrine of faith alone. Faith has an object. Faith is grounded in reason. Faith is grounded in the character of God Himself. 
And then we've touched on this already, but sola fide does not teach that faith are the grounds of your salvation. Sola fide says that Christ is the ground of your salvation. Faith is the means through which God credits Christ's work to you. So don't look at your faith as why God loves you. Look to Christ as why God loves you. And that in and of itself is faith. B.B. Warfield said, It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves. But Christ saves through faith. Hear that again. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves. But it is Christ that saves through faith. That makes all the difference in the world. It is no longer because I or because of mine, but it is because of Christ that we are saved. Herman Ritterboss echoes, we must not think of faith as a sort of minimalist work. It's not the act of believing that is considered righteous. Rather, it is Christ who is righteous. And it is His obedience and it is His satisfaction that is credited to us through faith. Think of faith like a check. If you are in debt up to your eyeballs and your friend writes you a check, it is not the check itself that has the value. The check is worthless if your buddy doesn't have the money in his account to transfer to you. But if he does have the money in his account, then the bank will back up that check as the means of transfer. Our faith is similar. We are infinitely indebted to God and utterly dependent on the merits of Christ. Faith is the check. Faith is the means of transfer of funds. The faith is worthless if the object isn't there to back it up. It would be silly, just as silly to make faith the object of our affection as it would be making spoon, making the spoon the highlight of your dessert. Faith is what ta- faith is the instrument faith is not the object faith is not the grounds just like the spoon is the instrument the dessert is the reward christ is the reward faith is the means through which that reward is given to you so then that logically leaves the question if salvation is by faith alone in christ alone and has nothing to do with my works Does that then mean faith without works saves? No. It does not mean that. Remember, when we talk about salvation or justification being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are talking about how God justifies, not what the life of a truly justified person looks like. The confession affirms that faith alone is the instrument of justification, but faith is not alone in the person justified, but faith is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. 
And so far from leading to pride and fear or legalism and lawlessness, the doctrine of sola fide does away with all of that. It does away with pride because it's not my faith that saves. It's not my ability to have some strong faith, but it's Christ having to come and take on flesh and die and be resurrected to save. No pride there. But it does away with fear as well. If it's not based on my strong faith, if my faith isn't the object of my salvation, if Christ is the object of my salvation and what He did is enough, then I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be a legalist either. I don't have to come up with a bunch of rules to try to please God. If I'm rejoicing in obeying God, it's because I love Him because of what He's done for me. And so lawlessness goes out the window because now I want to please God. It is a delight to please my Father. It's not to earn His love. So you are humble and you are assured and you are holy if you believe that God saves by grace through faith in Christ alone. So the answer to our Original question, what must I do to be saved must necessarily be believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This, this salvation, this justification, this removal of guilt and shame and this reckoning and accounting of you and I as perfectly loved and accepted in God's sight is not by the slightest merit on your part. It's not because of some work you performed or even some faith you were able to muster up. But we are made right by His grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and on the basis of His work alone. And next week we'll get to see why on earth He would do such an amazing thing.